What's up, filmmakers? I'm Rachel Janetti. I'm Tom Kowalski. And you're watching or listening to Everyday Filmmakers. Uh, how have you been, Tom? I'm not going to lie. I've been, I've been very tired this past week. I can relate to that, definitely. It's getting towards midterms here. Uh, we're both seniors. Uh, we're not streaming live from the University of Buffalo, so it's been a few weeks, certainly. You know, I was told that senior spring is like the slack off time for in college, and I feel like I've been lied to because I am so busy. Somehow, every other semester I've taken 19 credits. This semester I'm taking 16, and I am more tired than I've ever been. Congratulations, what an accomplishment. Yeah, I have filming every morning at least at 5, if not 9.30. Oof. Life of a filmmaker, honestly. Have you had any exciting developments over the past week? Not particularly, no. Uh, I've been uh, editing some stuff. I've been uh, looking at some stuff. I've been thinking about writing some more stuff. You know how it goes. Yeah, very Thinking about a lot of stuff, not actually conceptual. doing conceptual. Yes. Uh, this week I applied to a film festival here. It's called Baird Point with my film that I made last semester. I also applied for, I believe it's like the Television Academy Foundation, their networking event. Oh, the summit. It's called the College Television Summit. But very yeah, interesting, that's very interesting. I, but this week, point. we watched American, American Psycho. Psycho. It was an interesting movie. I didn't expect it to end that abruptly, but I kind of liked it. Right. Um, I was kind of expecting it to be more of a midsummer kind of gore, but this was very tasteful. I've never seen Midsummer. What do you mean by uh, Midsummer? Can you elaborate? Well, uh, you know how on like Criminal Minds, they show like the I've entire- I've never seen Criminal Minds. <laughs> Have you seen NCIS? No. <laughs> the silence is so loud right now. <laughs> okay, so you know on an autopsy table when they, like, open up the body? Yeah. That. Okay. Imagine that with a hammer, though. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. But, like, on a television screen. I, okay, still making sense. I, I get the picture. All right. Yeah. Okay. It, with also a cult. Okay, then there we go. Now it's all making sense. All right. American Psycho was very interesting. What did you think about it? I thought it was, I mean, like you said, it was interesting. I'm not sure I really loved it or even liked it that much. I didn't dislike it, though. I was talking with a friend about this who also recently saw American Psycho for the first time. And, like, I was just kind of expecting more. Like, I feel like with all the hype this movie has around it, I was kind of expecting a bit more from, like, the story and whatnot and, like, the themes. Because, of course, one of the star parts of this movie is, of course, the star, Christian Bale, who just puts on a just a beautiful performance. Fantastic. Fantastic performance. Jesus Christ, he really is the American psycho. That was my favorite line in the movie, by the way. <laughs> he is very interesting in the way he, like, carries himself throughout the movie. I feel like it's such a subtle progression through uh, the levels of madness, I want to say. I think that part was done extremely well. It was, I think it's meant to be confusing. It's kind of meant to be Fight Club-esque right. in its message, in my opinion. But of course, that might be the film major in me diving too deep into that. But I know no, it is I, a cult classic. And yeah. There are many people who dispute the ending and um, dispute what it means, right. really. I think... I want to talk first about his admittance throughout the movie. Like, he does it, like, in the first scene, he admits to murdering people. Mm -hmm. And at first, you as a viewer are like, what? And then you kind of move on because it, all of his friends talk so fast. Right. So, 
what does that mean? What to you do you think his admittance in just normal conversation means? It's almost like he wants people to find out um, about his kind of condition, sort of. Because, like, the way it's sort of portrayed in the film, I believe, it's kind of like a... It's kind of like a, a sexual desire for him, sort of. Like, a, if you know what I mean. Where it's like something he really, really wants, but, you know, by the end of the movie, it's kind of implied or shown or some form explained to the audience that that he really hasn't really done anything like that it's really just a fantasy in his head still much like a a lot of like the sexual fantasies uh some people may have basically i i agree with that thought i also think it is uh i wrote it down here i have about six pages of notes I also have a, a decent amount of notes here, yeah. too. Basically, uh, the ignorance of others when he's admitting, admitting his deeds makes him mad. What I wrote is, no matter how successful or how memorable he may try to be, he will never be remembered. Mm-hmm. And um, to an extent, I can actually kind of relate to the fear of being forgotten or being less than. Right. Like, back in <laughs> back in high school, my friends called this thing Rachel Gennetti syndrome, where you meet Rachel Gennetti once and forget I exist, and mm-hmm. then you meet her once more, and then remember all of a sudden that she exists. Hmm. His version of coping with that is to try to trample everybody that did him wrong, rather mm-hmm. than just try to make himself memorable. He has to make himself memorable, and through that, he has to put others down. Right. In that case, it means six feet under. But does it? <laughs> but does it? Yes, it's it's a very confusing kind of uh, web that we're weaving in this movie. And I think it was really... So you question whether or not you yourself are going mad. Right. Yeah. That's one thing I'd, I would like to talk about real quick, actually, mm-hmm. with the uh, with the ending. So I know that the, the filmmakers directly said that they uh, they wanted to keep it ambiguous on purpose. But I'm not sure how I feel about that because... So I had to look up kind of like the ending explained to this movie because I'm mm-hmm. stupid also. I did uh, not look it up. Do you want me to uh, kind of... I mean, you can explain what you thought and okay. then I'll like see if that matches up with what I thought. So what I originally thought, like before I, I read like the ending explained kind of thing, uh, my exact quote here uh, was... What the F was that ending? Was it a dream? A vision? It's Bateman going crazy in a different way than expected? That's what I originally thought. That was my kind of like closing thoughts on the, when I finished watching the movie. But then when I, uh, I read like the ending explained, it made a bit more sense that like, so it is all in his head. The bodies are cleaned up when he goes back to Alan's apartment and no repercussions happen because he's, it's, it's all in his head. That's like a, like kind of subtle examples, but one of the better examples I think is when he's, uh, he's shooting at the cops with his gun. And it's just like a tiny little pistol. And like the cop car just blows up on the first shot. And he kind of looks down at his gun for a second and be like, that, that's not supposed to happen. That only happens in the movies. And then he, but he kind of keeps on going because he's just, he's too into it. He's too uh, into his mindset right now. So mm-hmm. I just thought that was, that was really interesting. It is all in his head. And another example is when uh, at the beginning, when he's talking to the bartender and he's just like, he orders a drink and then she bends down to start making the drink. And he looks right into the, into the mirror and he's just like, you are a worthless piece of garbage or whatever the exact line. I don't remember what it is, but it's, it's still just, it's like all in his head, but it's like still, I feel like the filmmakers are too subtle about it. And if you're too subtle about it, then I feel that's not the best way to tell a story if I have to look it up afterwards. But remember, I am also stupid. 
I think that they did well with the actors that they had, especially like um, Reese Witherspoon is literally amazing. Can we talk about that breakup scene? It's literally Legally Blonde. It's literally the exact scene that she did in Legally Blonde. It is I've hilarious. Only, I've only seen Legally Blonde, the musical. I've not seen the movie. Okay, let's put that on the list. Okay. You need to watch that. That's You need to watch that. But it's... <laughs> she is such a perfect actor mm-hmm. for that character because she can do it so well. And yeah. I feel like that's another character that kind of goes unrecognized especially in this movie because i didn't even know she was in this movie at first Mm. until she showed up and i was like wait a second that's el woods i think when he's admitting to his crimes he's you know how he's crying it's his first like show of emotion the entire film Mm. like he never showed any other emotion other than the ones that he uses to manipulate people often blonde women he admits that he killed these people and even ate some of their brains gross but like you know mm-hmm. he's crying that he might be caught and that no one's gonna recognize him right. not that he's actually sorry right but also something i just thought of what about the fact that i'm trying to find the words here mm-hmm. there is that other man that he is competing with that he kills first in the movie paul like, that we see yeah paul allen people keep thinking he's paul allen Mm-hmm. But he, he in his mind is Patrick Bateman. Right. Could it be another um, Fight Club situation where you think that maybe he is also Paul Allen, but mm. also Patrick Bateman? That's really cool. I didn't think of that, actually. That's really that's really interesting theory. Like, um, And then him like murdering him is like literally him trying to get rid of the literal Paul Allen in his head. And like then mm-hmm. Patrick Bateman taking over from Paul Allen in, in his body uh, from the Jekyll dual personalities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He also peels off that um, face mask in the beginning that could be also a shedding of his mask that he uses. Paul Allen could have been the same version of Patrick Bateman, the emotional, the human version of Patrick Bateman. Mm. So I just thought that was a very interesting tidbit. But there are a couple like technical things that I noticed as well. Real quick, just uh, now that I am thinking about the, uh, the Paul Allen, Patrick Bateman yeah. kind of uh, Jekyll and Hyde situation. It is interesting also, a, a similar mirror uh, between them is like how Paul Allen's apartment is um, more homely, more kind of like, you know, it feels like it's lived in. There's like uh, paintings, there's uh, colorful couches and rugs and whatnot. And they and look then, used. And they look used. And Patrick Bateman's is just this like sterile, white lab room kind of looking apartment that's like very modern and clean and simple. And additionally, I'm also just thinking this, the business card scene, which, by the way, God, I love that scene. It's such a good scene. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Oh, uh, yeah. That's <laughs> the way he points, too. Right. Uh, There's a real Sigma male grind set. Uh, anyways, oh, it's like, uh, again, it's like a reflection that they might just be the same person. Because it is, if I remember correctly, it's the same exact card, right? But he gets so in- incensed when he sees it because he views it to be better. Right. Um, he also has this inferiority complex as well because he believes that all these people are better than him in some way mm-hmm. and he wants to be the best in every single way. Right. And it could be because we also were alluded to that his father owns the company, mm-hmm. that he was expected to be that way since he was a child. Yeah. And now he's in this position of power and he's competing against all these other people who are also in the same position as mm-hmm. children because often if you're... A vice president of a banking firm or whatever he was 
you're probably going to be well off to begin with to go to a good school to get a good job and stuff like that. Right. It also does kind of, I'm sorry to keep on delaying you, but it also does keep on like playing into the theme of this toxic masculinity, which just kind of permeates throughout the film. Like uh, there's the, how he just kind of recklessly throws his fiance aside for these prostitutes and and then his secretary. And then like, you know, how he tells his secretary to dress and uh, all that sort of jazz. And like the constant kind of like trash talking of women and uh, the, even competitiveness between all the males at this in these higher up positions at whatever this company is. Like personally, I think they kind of beat a dead horse with the misogyny hmm. because I, I feel like it was a little bit obviously Patrick Bateman's over the top with everything he does, right. but um, I feel like from his friends at least it should have been more toned down rather than like his friends are um, also very like over the top with their view of women and their how they talk about women it's almost like a character yes and also almost all of the women in the movie are blonde Mm -hmm. the ones who actually are speaking are blonde right like no other roles are given to anybody who is not blonde in this movie i believe except maybe one what do you think the uh significance is that like a female director kind of directed this sort of like very male gaze kind of film you know what i mean like a male-centric film i think that she went to like she purposely went to an extreme because she wanted to show how ridiculous it is don't know if she actually accomplished what she wanted to because this is a very much uh this film is very yes well this film has like a very big male male gazy well yes but also it's fan base is very male and it's usually millennial male men obviously because they were um young when it was released i wrote ugh in a few points in the script uh because of what he said and i guess that was the point but the thing is the people that were watching this in theaters did not understand that let's be honest here like they didn't like realize that that was done to overemphasize it I think they're looking at um, Patrick Bateman as kind of, I don't want to say an alpha male because that's such a stereotype. But he's a that's sigma like, male, come on. Uh, no, because <laughs> he's like, he's viewed as this rich, powerful person who has all this power over women and men and who exerts his power through murder. So he's almost like an anti-hero in this film. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like they went about it wrong because... I get the anti-hero. We have it all the time, even back to Shakespeare. I don't know. I feel like it went a little bit too far in the misogyny because I feel like it kind of leaned into it. Would you like to get back to, uh, I know you're mentioning production before I kind of like yes. cut you off, but would you like to get back into that? Oh yeah, totally. So actually in the first office scene, I liked the shaky follow shot, but then we moved into when he was taking his coat off when he first got to the office. There was a lav mic mistake, at least in the copy that I saw, where you can definitely hear the rustling over the mic and stuff like that. And I didn't think, because I looked at the budget, it was $7 million for this film. That's like relatively small, right? It's relatively small, but like in 2000, I feel like it would have, like you could have reshot that with a boom mic rather than a lav mic. Right. You know? I think so. I I can't remember the specific scene you're talking about, but I know like like there was kind of like this... It was a shuffle. 
He's yeah. annoying. And I couldn't stop thinking about it for the rest of the film. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was that. And I feel like that was the only thing that I noticed as a mistake. Because like a lot of times I will look at the background actors as well. And I'll see who's like looking into the camera lens or something like that. I did think I saw Winona Ryder at one point, but I don't think it was actually her. Winona Ryder? Yeah, I don't know why. Because it was the one brunette woman that I saw in the entire film. And she like walked through in one of the club scenes. Hmm. And I was like, that's weird. Yeah. Every other woman here is blonde. So I thought she was going to be an important character. She just walked by. I didn't even notice the, uh, like the blonde theme throughout the film. That's interesting. I didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah. And also, the uh, there's like these close shots to the cards, the business cards. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed those. I thought they were a little dark, but they were pretty well lit for what they were right. in 2000. This is like 22 years ago at this point. So, right. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling 22 in a few months. Me in a week. Also, have we ever explained why Reese Witherspoon was holding a pig in the Christmas scene? I thought he was going to kill it. I thought he was too. I think that was more symbolic, honestly. I think that was more just like a, well, one, he hates like dirty things. He's He says during the film he only feels greed and disgust. So I feel like that's, you know, pretty symbolic because, you know, when we think of like, like a kind of a caricature for like a like a big old businessman. We think of like a like a fat pig, uh, a quote unquote capitalist pig, if you will. So that could, that could probably be just a, a little bit of symbolism. I thought it was a bit kind of heavy handed. I feel like it could have been more like a I don't know, like a like a stuffed pig or something. Maybe like a, even like a painting on the wall or something. That that maybe maybe that'd be a bit better. I feel like it was weird that they just introduced the pig with no further context. You're right about that. No resolution. Yeah. I do want to mention a couple things, one of them being the uh, music, but also, um, do you think, because he is obviously a psychopath, no. as, as the title says. The American Psycho? Yeah, I know. Shocker. But uh, do you think, because like, there are people who are actual diagnosed psychopaths, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that they are murderous villains right we should just preface that we are talking about a character mm-hmm. who was written in 2000 before any like leaps in mental health were really made. yeah the issue with being i know that sociopath in recent years has become like a kind of buzzword as well uh people calling people sociopaths just because they don't feel like that much empathy on a certain subject that's mm-hmm. not what you should do don't self-diagnose i feel like we should get that out of the way as well right. do you think it's harmful for people with this particular disorder to have this movie around i don't know i mean i guess potentially because i can't imagine you know your mental illness being treated as this kind of like comedic thing to be portrayed uh, in a movie as like a very helpful coping mechanism but i'm also not a psychologist uh i've not really delved too deep into it um i i i imagine it's not very good for them but i also imagine there's not too many psychopaths out there watching the movie yeah um 
by definition by Oxford Dictionary, person suffering from chronic mental disorder with abnormal, uh, abnormal <laughs> English or violent social behavior. So it could be a range of things to be a psychopath. So like I, d- I don't know honestly because like this is almost a caricature right. of a person. The way he progresses is that in the beginning he's aware that he is a psychopath. He's right. aware that he is not normal. And that's a, that's the case for many people who have mental disorders. They are aware that something is wrong, but they mm-hmm. don't realize it in the moment. Right. Yeah. So this internal monologue that he's having, I also have issues with the narration of the game and kind of annoys me when movies do that. Mm. You, you know? digress. I digress. The thing is, he does show emotions throughout this and those emotions are only ag- aggression. And I well, don't, like, I'm not a psychologist. He also, he also does show fear at the end, like in fear, fear that he's going to be actually caught. Yeah. I, I feel like it's almost a caricature of someone who is suffering with uh, mental illnesses, but then again, all of these movies about murderous people basically are. So that brings in a whole other conversation that we won't get into right now because we only have like 30 minutes. Right. Yeah, it's just an interesting topic to talk about and it's important to talk about because people do suffer with mental illnesses every day and I know many people who actually suffer with mental illnesses. Yeah. I mean, the film is almost at times treated kind of like a, like comedically. Like I think even on Wikipedia, it's like they classify it as like a psychological thriller slash black comedy. Yeah. Because like there's definitely... There's some funny moments in there. The scene where he, he kills Paul Allen with the axe is just like, oh, that's that's kind of funny. I'm not going to lie. You like Huey Lewis on the news? You like Huey Lewis on the news? Um, Are you wearing a raincoat? Yeah, I am. And he, you know, does a thing. <laughs> it's just like that was, I think that was the exact moment, actually, when he said, yeah, and then smack. That was the moment where he plummeted. Like, right. that's where he broke. Mm-hmm. Because, like, if we're going on our theory that they're the same person, that's when he killed the same version of themselves. Right. The self that, and then that's also when the um, admittance in normal conversation started to back up again. Even to the end, where we're kind of spoiling it here, his lawyer doesn't even believe him. Right. His confession meant nothing, and he said, and I quote, "I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape." And then they just said, "Nah." Well, Basically. to kind of build off that, I know, I know we've talked about this at the beginning, but I have it actually written down here more, you know, uh, eloquently than I said. Uh, so what I think the ending is trying to say is that existence is kind of meaningless for Babin, because if he never actually committed the crimes, he can't really satisfy his urge for blood, and he must live in quiet suffering for the rest of his days. You know, that's, I mean, it's kind of a sad existence to not be able to partake in your, like, pleasures, I guess, even if those mm-hmm. pleasures are, you know, murdering people. Uh, but the thing is, his pleasure isn't murdering people, it's just getting credit. Credos? Credit? Credit? Yeah, credit. <laughs> but the thing is, his uh, pleasure doesn't come from murdering people, it's getting credit for the murders. And that that's the thing that's never going to be satisfied. Right. Anyway, uh, that's a wrap for today, but do you want to announce our next film? 
Yes, for our next podcast, we will be watching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, starring Jim Carrey. Uh, it is, once again, a film neither of us have seen. Uh, I know your roommate is a big fan of it, though. Oh, yeah. Jenna is the biggest fan of it. I think it is her favorite movie. And she is outraged that I have not seen it, and so is Davis. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm very excited to see this. Yeah, I'll be interested uh, to see it as well. I've heard uh, very good things over the years. Yeah, definitely. So it's time for us to leave you guys, and uh, our set is shutting down for the for the day. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's cut. It. All right, and cut. All right.